Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So it's been a cracking start to 2023 here at the Science of Sport podcast. And uh, as usual, we've had uh, a lot to talk about uh, just over the January, February months. And thank you for all of you that have participated not only in our forums on Patreon, which you can support us and also get some of Ross's amazing insights and uh, weekly newsletters and feedback from, but also on our Twitter feed as well, SportsciPod, where you've been interacting with us on the various things we've been talking about. But today we have a very interesting and slightly unusual discussion with a gentleman who I asked him at one point during the interview if he saw himself as a self-help guru or Mm self-help book author. And you'll soon discover that uh, he's probably a little bit more than that, even though he is best known at the moment for being a self-help book writer. Um, But before we get on to that, we're going to get kicking off with some interesting caught my eyes. I'm going to kick off with mine this week and uh, just have a quick look at And now this is something I caught my eye on Twitter. And it was Cara Goucher who tweeted a very controversial moment in uh, U.S. athletics where a guy by the name of Brody Buffington, who is the U.S. number one in the 55 meters, uh, won't be able to defend his state title in the 300 meters after getting DQ'd for his celebration in Maryland West Virginia regional meet. Now, if you look at the video, and I'll put all the links up on, our, uh, on the pod afterwards, there is a video of him celebrating as he comes down this, the indoor track of this meet. And he does celebrate, but not overly. And even Cara Gauncher in the tweet says, I've watched this video 20 times. What am I missing? I see a kid running hard and having fun. I see him enjoying his moment. I don't see any disrespect. God, track and field. Why are we killing our own excitement? And I can't agree with Cara Gauncher more than that. Mm. Because when you look at the actual video, I don't know. When I, th- when I saw the tweet, I thought this is going to be some crazy celebration. But not really. This is just a young guy. He's obviously very, very happy. And we've seen way more celebratory things happening in other sports and even in track and field. Usain Bolt alone probably accounts for over-celebration, you know, half a dozen times when he was uh, breaking world records. Well, I remember when Bolt broke the world record in Beijing, there was controversy that he celebrated before crossing the finish line. Yes. And in that past, was disrespectful, supposedly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I, when I saw this video, because the same thing caught my eye, I saw it, and I guess the only thing is that probably got some obscure rule... 15.1.3 clause C1 that says that you may not celebrate before the race is over and even when it's over don't be excessive whatever that means and maybe this guy falls foul of like it looks like he starts celebrating five before or ten the meters line. before, before yes, the line and he does yes. I mean I, I think it's great to do that I think it's cool <laughs> remember Engelbertson's done that mm-hmm. we've seen athletes do that and then lose yes which is even more fun yes exactly so I, I don't know like it's I appreciate what she's saying about killing the sport, but like lots of sports do the same thing. Um, yeah. As, as we just said, Bolt was criticized, and that's why, remember, he came out then and ripped the 200 mm. in part defiant against people who criticized his mm. early celebration. Mm. But it was the, the reason that nine, what would that 
what time event was it 963 or something when you ran in beijing the one when he celebrated with his shoelaces putting me on the spot yeah i think it was anyway whatever the anyway, time was it was, it, was the, it was the beijing race and uh yeah they they i think then he, he came out the year after and said all right no no more no more celebrations but the reason that beijing performance was so iconic was because of the photographs of him thumping his chest before finishing the race. Mm. So I, yeah, I know. And those pictures silly. are kind of the pictures that you see when you look at Usain Bolt's career. Exactly. Those are the pictures that you will see and remember him by. Exactly. So in a way, they were great. I, I guess yeah. it, I, I guess it, it, it sort of raises the question as to what is too much celebration? And I, and I thought about that a little bit when I watched that video and thought, okay, if I don't think that's over celebration, what do I think is over celebration? In other words, what, constitutes that and is there such a thing and i think when celebration crosses the line into being disrespectful and i think sometimes it's a little bit like what happens at cricket sometimes when you see yeah. a bowler sending off a batsman so he's got a batsman lbw he's caught him from behind and and he sends him off merv hughes the famous australian fast bowler was famous for sort of sending off the batsman with a mm. with a couple mm. of rude words and that sort of thing yeah. and telling sending him back now that's Maybe not celebration, but it's over exuberance when it comes to celebrating some some of his dismissal. That's yeah. the only example I can think of. Well, on the cricket, remember Kahisa Rabada when we played Australia was banned for a match for the same thing. He ran through to the keeper and changed the direction to run especially close to the batsman he just dismissed, and he got a game ban, and that was really controversial. I think they appealed that and got that ban overturned. So you mm. can see it's like it's a grey area because it's so subjective. Mm. What's even even saying what's disrespectful? That's a subjective mm. opinion. I, mm. I might say you're disrespecting me, but actually, mm. I'm maybe a bit too sensitive. Is it maybe what you're saying is just you're not in the not in the well? You can say the spirit of the, the game. spirit of the game, and I hate celebrating that. before that. Like, and that's where the, that's the thing. Sometimes, like sport, sport tries to hold itself up as virtuous, and a lot of elements of sport are. Mm. You know, we see this a lot as rugby. Like, please don't boo the kicker. Mm. Please be respectful to your opposing fans. In football, like anything goes, to a, to a fault actually, like to the point that they have to they have to keep. I remember going to the Sheffield Derby when I was in Sheffield in about 2014 or something. No, even even before that, 2011. Mm. And after the game, the away fans have to stay for about half an hour because they can't they can't let the fans out of the ground at the same time. So there's a point at which it gets excessive. Yeah. We're not talking about that, but I think a bit of like rivalry, even hostility, as mm. long as it's not acted upon, is good. Mm. So I would I would say boo the kicker all you want. That's yeah. the whole point of home ground advantage. Yeah. In the same way that if you're this guy like Bowl, okay, don't taunt your opponents and be a douche. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but celebrate. It's good. Mm. There are sports that have got legal policies around this. NFL has an illegal celebration penalty. Right. And I looked it up, and illegal celebration is one that is prolonged or excessive by one player, a group of players, or a coach. This usually falls into one of the following categories: taunting. Yes. And I've seen it actually. Watch, when you watch it, a guy makes a big tackle and he stands over the guy and says, "Like, don't you dare come down my path again! I'll, I'll you have you for breakfast." Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I think it's good to watch. It's great. Um, sexually suggestive actions, fair. Yeah, Vi violent actions or actions that imply violence, dunking on the goalpost or damaging the ball and goalposts. I think if you're athletic enough to jump with the ball over the crossbar of the goalpost and slam it down, they should let you. And then any celebration takes a lot of time and is excessive. I remember watching one player in snow make a snow angel and he got penalized. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's like a, I don't know, maybe it took him too that's, long or something. So there are sports that try and do this, and I just think sometimes they're a bit too precious. 
The only time I actually can think of when, and I again looked this up beforehand and I remember it, was when they had the Tokyo Olympics in 2020, 2021, it turned out to be, where they had a, a rule against over-celebration because of COVID mm. concerns that you're going to go and hug everybody because you'd won and you were going to spend COVID. So that's the only time I can think where, you know, Olympic star sports have actually laid down the hammer. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And, two, and, two, and two things on this. I mean, just a, a final thought on this. And it's, it's another one of those caught my eyes is that, first of all, Brodie Buffington might be the best name I've heard this year, except for one other person that I had contact with this week in an interview that I did who organizes a very famous trail run here in South Africa called the Ultra Distance Drakensberg, which is very well known and getting very well established as a big trail run. And his name is Spurge Flemington. Those are two great names. Is that a nickname? No, that's his real name. Spurgeon <laughs> Flemington and Brodie Buffington. There we go. My names of the year so far. One last, <laughs> just one last thought on celebration. I, saw, I watched a game at the Australian Open. I think it was Maria Sakari when she got beaten. Mm. And she took great offense at her opponent celebrating every point. Even even to the extent that she was celebrating Sakari's errors with fist bumps and aggressive come-ons. And she got quite upset by that. It looked like it might bubble over. So that's an example of like celebrating, but now you're actually starting to like annoy the opponent. Should you stop or should they actually just ignore you? Yeah. I would argue the latter. Yeah. Exactly. It's gamesmanship, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Can you beat my eyes? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if mine is socially interesting. A <laughs> couple of things, though. Last time we recorded, actually, was a couple of weeks back. We've released two podcasts since, but we haven't recorded for a while. And in that podcast, we spoke about the high tackle law in England, where they'd lowered it to the waist. And I mentioned the blowback. <laughs> I think at the time we recorded, they had 25,000 signatures on a petition to basically vote no confidence against the RFE board. Mm. Not only that was up at 75,000 and may have even hit 100,000. So they're coming under major pressure. And of course, you can imagine there's been all this reaction. I was on... So just, just to of, clarify, they're coming under major pressure from people saying that they shouldn't mm, invoke like leave our game low tackle law. Leave right. our game leave alone. Our game alone yeah. We want this risk, and I'll, I'll cover that in a moment. Mm. Um, and, and last night I was reading some tweets by people who are involved in various community clubs and They've all mobilized and brought the clubs together to have some sort of consultation and they're going to go with a try and get a vote of no confidence against that. So it could it could be actually quite a significant political moment in English rugby. And the, the problem from my perspective, at least, again, I've got no political horse in this particular race, is that they've, they've rejected every element of it now. And that's mm. the problem. Like we spoke in the podcast about calibrating the reduction, saying there is a, that something does have to change, but how much? And how do you do it? It's not what, it's how. Mm. And it seems that the lack of consultation has now alienated so many people that they might push back against the what. And they seem to have failed to untangle that it's not the lowering of the height, it's the way it's being done, and maybe the degree to which it's been done. Mm. So that's a big issue. Now for those who haven't listened to that podcast, just very briefly give us a bit of a summary as to what they're proposing. They made an announcement that they're going to bring the height of the tackle down in all levels of rugby in England, aside from the elite. So that's mm. the sort of top two or three tiers of rugby. Every other rugby player in England, as of the July 2023, will have to tackle the waist down. So that's quite significant. It means you can't hit any part of your opponent from their belly button up. And they've said that that will be such a significant change to the sport that a lot of people will leave the sport. They reject it outright. And that's where this mobilization has happened. And so I've realized two things because I've been involved in had a couple. I did a BT Sport, a couple of podcasts as well. I've realized a couple of things. One is that the voice of the rugby community is not heard often enough. I mean, I, listeners will know I work for World Rugby and 
most of our work is done in how to reduce the risk. And we hear a lot of pressure from one side saying, you should do more, not doing enough. The risk to players is too high. What this debate has kicked off is the other side's voice. And so now we're hearing, actually, no, the risk is fine. Yeah. And that's quite important. Now, you don't realize when you're involved in the, in the battle, as it were, it's not a real battle, but the battle, and you're only ever really hearing from one side, the, the advocates for reduced risk, there's a lawsuit to try and make. And, and, of course, the sport has to be safer. But it's been quite interesting to hear that there is a not insignificant body of people who actually reject any change at all. Yeah. So, again, the sport's caught in the middle now because can't stay where it is, has to move, but how far and in which direction? Because they've got a constitution, uh, sorry, a, co- a constituency of people mm. that actually control the game sort of almost democratically. Yeah. They have to be aware of. Yeah, and, and, you can't, you can't and we're not always, you're not always. You actually, yeah. have to, you actually have to try and be aware of it. You're yeah. not just going to be aware of it incidentally because it's one of those classic situations where maybe the loudest voice is coming from the minority. And unless you listen to the majority, they don't speak, you know. Mm. So that's been mm. quite interesting. It's been quite enlightening to hear the voice of people who are saying, leave it. We're happy with the risk. But we still <laughs> don't know sure. what, const- what, how many of yeah. them really are and how many do they represent. Right. Know. So that's yeah. an unknown. And the other thing is you can't just leave it because people want the risk. Sometimes you have to step in on people's behalf. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't understand the risk. And we know that humans are pretty lousy at assessing long-term risk implications. So I'm not mm. arguing here for like leaving it alone because of people telling us to. I'm saying that their voice hasn't been heard, and it's actually been quite informative to hear that there is a, another side to this. And then on that risk issue, the, the, the argument was made that the community risk of concussion is way lower than the elite game. In the elite game, it's four or five concussions every five matches. Mm. So let's call it four every five. In the community game, it's one every five, so it's a quarter. And what the community players are saying is that I'll take that risk. Mm. I play community rugby. I'm happy with the risk as it is, and let me play. The problem is that it's not individual risk that has to be managed by the collective. It's collective risk. And mm. even though that individual risk is low, when you have a thousand matches a weekend, that relatively low individual risk becomes a very large collective burden. Mm. Makes sense, right? Yeah. And that's something that the, the individuals haven't recognized. So those who are rejecting the RFU are saying it's my risk. The RFU are saying it's not your risk, it's our risk. Mm. That tension between the individual and collective is quite mm. important. It's the same thing as COVID lockdowns. Yeah, yeah. Remember, there were a lot of people. Good, good analogy. There were a lot of people saying, like, the risk of the infection fatality rate is 0.3%. Mm. I'll take my chances. Mm. Well, yeah, but if 2 million people took their chances, we would have hundreds of thousands of deaths. And 100%. we can't do that as a society. So, mm. same thing as road safety. Yeah. You can get in your car and say, I'll take the risk of speeding without a seatbelt and an airbag. Mm. But actually, we can't let everyone do that yeah. because then it would be a public health crisis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's a tension that I don't think has been resolved as individuals are understandably focused on themselves and the collective has to assess everyone and they don't connect. Mm. So I thought that was, that was of interest. Yeah. And I so to just, to, just to remind the, 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 the listeners who haven't listened to that podcast, that came out to the 24th of January. It's our second episode of our season number five. So have a look at that. It's called English... Rugby's controversial new tackle law. So, yeah, you want to see more of that? Yep. Okay, so there's that one. And then something that caught my eye literally yesterday, Jonathan Galt, who's with Let's Run, good follow on Twitter, at jgold13, tweeted something yesterday, track and field news, which is like the Bible of track and field, has announced now that it will no longer track new additions to the sub-four-minute mile club. So what they used to do was they used to publish the name of every American who went under four minutes. Mm. 
They said they're not going to do that because, and I'm quoting, super shoes have bombarded the four-minute barrier into something no longer relevant for tracking. Sure. And in fact, Jonathan posted some stats. Hmm. In the 2010s, the average number of sub-four-minute miles is somewhere between 10 and 20. On a good year, it's in the 20s. On a, low, on a bad year, it's in the teens. In 2021, it jumped to 36. In 2022, it was 63. And so far this year, it's 60. Wow. And it's not even it's not even, end, not even not mid-feb. Even, so there's another month to go in the indoor oh, season. This is, and so and so remember when we first discussed the super shoes, we said it would be a recalibration. Mm. So it's like recalibrating your thermometer where, you know, 28 hot, not anymore. From now on, it's 32. Same thing here. Four minute that's mile. Quite, that's quite a glaring bit of evidence, yeah, isn't it? Four minute mile used to be good. Mm. Now it's uh, now you've got around 358. It'd be interesting to actually track what performance would keep the numbers the same because that would mm. give you an idea of the advantage. I'd love to see. I mean, the, the interesting thing about that is it's, you start looking at the age extremes when it comes to this now because it is so common. So what's the youngest athlete mm. to have broken a sub-four-minute mile? And is that younger athlete getting younger because of the technology available? And then what is the oldest athlete that's done a sub-four-minute mile mm. and did the technology help then? So has it spread the age gap of available people, which mm. I think is quite fascinating. There was, a, there was a video on Let's Run posted it a few weeks back in early mid-Jan where five or six high schoolers did it in one race. Wow. Unbelievable. High schoolers? Yeah. So that's 16-odd. Yeah, 15-16. Yeah. No, I mean, there would have been a couple oh. every year. But, but you're right, and there'll be... In the past, it was one, I don't know, if one 40-something-year-old every three years. Now, there'll be three mm. per year, you know. Bannister will be, Bannister will be uh, not happy to see that, considering what a landmark thing it was. What, 64, <laughs> something like that? Something like that? Like, when you break four-minute oh, mile, 50, what year was it? 1953. 50, 53, there you 54. Go. Oh, 54. Okay. Everest was 53. I remember the race was on. Everest go. or sub-four. Everest won. So sub-four yeah, I knew there's a reason why I have you in my quiz team. Everest. And... Uh, <laughs> Nowadays, it's like nowadays it's it's like flying a helicopter up to the top of Everest, so to speak. Pity, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. Maybe it's a three fifty club from now on. Who knows? Three fifty seven. I would have thought yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then then we've got a couple of court myers from our patrons. In fact, a few because as I say, it's been a while since we recorded. So I wanted to bring a couple of them up. Graham Smith messaged me with views on SA cricket tests. Mm. So you can imagine I saw Graham Smith. Yeah. Talking about cricket is fitness, and I thought, oh, okay, I don't know that it is. I doubt no, it. No, but, sure uh, but he brought up an issue that then became a big talking point here in South Africa. We've got the T20 World Cup starts today, as today, we're recording. Yeah. By yeah. the time you all listen to this, it'll be almost yep. a week. So all the stadiums closing down. Just yeah. get ready, ready, yeah. And uh, this is the women's T20, and and they left out South Africa left out one of our best players, Dane Finikak, because she failed the fitness test, and subsequently emerged that she ran a two k in 9.48, and the target was 9.30. Wow. So she, because she failed to do that, she was left out of the squad. Now, she is. She's one of the only players in the world, let alone our squad, wow. who's got, and I forget the stats, but it's 1,500 runs and 50 wickets in, the, in that version of cricket. Yeah, yeah. So it's a big deal to leave out wow. for the World Cup. So people kicked off about this. There was Dale Stain was on it and all sorts of What was of Dale Stain's take on it? <laughs> he sarcastically uh, posted... Missed my target on the fitness test by two seconds. Yeah. Swear word, now I'm shit. Drop me, kind of thing, like sarcastically. Yeah. Um, and that that's kind of echoes the same. I can't help but agree with him on that. Yeah, so I read I mean, a piece. Ranatunga wouldn't have done very well on No, no, no chance, no chance. But he was a good batsman. Right. 
So it raises some interesting questions. It's like how important is fitness testing yeah. and to what extent do you apply it rigidly? They seem to have done that. Mm. You know, like I learned that, that her 948 was a PB. Mm. So she's been playing South Africa for years, mm. never even as fit as she is now, mm. never achieving that target. Why now? Yeah. So I don't know, maybe that's someone comes in, he wants to establish a new culture and a new mindset. And so there has to be a casualty and it's our best, one of our best players. Yeah. I don't know. It just doesn't it's, make any sense at all. Yeah, so last week's newsletter for our patron followers was on this, and I wrote probably too much. It was a longer piece than I should have. But basically, there's two ways you can look at a fitness test. The one is literal, like as in you're not fit enough to play. And you'd have to go a long way to convince me that running 2Ks in 9.30 is the the best way to assess my readiness for T20. I get what they're trying to do is they're trying to measure aerobic ability, you know, like how fit are you? Because presumably over the course of the 90 minutes you're fielding, you have to run – 15 times to chase a ball. Mm. Are you fit enough to recover after each one? So you can sort of see the rationale, but but a 2K run compared to the demands of T20, it feels like, you know, to yeah. use that cliche, it's like assessing a fish by its ability to climb a tree. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so she's a casualty of that. Sure. The other, there is another approach to fitness testing where you say that it's not the fitness result per se, it's the fitness as a filter of attitude in your players. Mm. And so as long as you are confident that your target is realistic, every player should get there provided they apply themselves. Failure to meet it means failure to apply yourself. So the reverse is true as well, by the way. When I was with the Sevens, we picked a couple of players because of their fitness performance because they were so good that you actually say there's someone with unbelievable athleticism plus work ethic. That's usable in our team. Maybe we can, you know, we we haven't even, we don't, well, we we know we can play rugby, Mm. But we appreciate those qualities as, mm. as almost indicators, symptoms of something else. Mm. The reverse would be that if you can't meet the fitness targets, maybe it's symptomatic of some kind of laziness, attitude and so on. No, mm. I don't know if that's the case here. I genuinely don't think no, so. I'd love to know how they came with that, that number. Why was that? Why yeah, was so 9.30? For, for men, it's 8.30. Yeah. We've got a bowler, Magala, who's failed that a couple of times. Yeah. Um, so so I, I don't know. I can't see that she wouldn't have tried and applied herself. So then you've got to say the target's wrong because now... No, 8.30 for two Ks is 4.15 a K, which is going it's some. A reasonable I mean, it's a reasonable speed. I mean, on the, yeah, you'd have to be pretty good. But Even if you're a runner, you'd be hard-pressed to do that. So if 97% of international cricketers can do it, cricketers can do it would you drop the other three because they can't yeah. or would you rather question the targets? Yeah. I think I'm falling into the yeah, latter camp. I'm yeah. definitely on that side. And I've proposed in the newsletter, I think there's better tests you can do. Like if you want to test readiness to play T20 cricket, <laughs> make them bowl 24 balls in 10 minutes mm. and run shuttles yeah. in between. That's, your, that's what you'll do in the game. Yeah. Make them run 40, 50 shuttles in five mm. sets of 10 over the course of five minutes, carrying a bat, wearing pads. Or do a beep test. If they can't do that, yeah. Beep but, test is a good one. And if they can't do that, then they're not prepared. Yeah. But 2K, I, anyway. So it's, yeah. it's hard for her yeah. to not make a team. So, yeah, there's that. <sighs> Julia Littlefair got in touch. She says, hi, guys. Absolutely love your podcast. Thanks, Jules. She brought up an article on Elish McColgan. Now, listeners might recall towards the end of last year, we discussed very briefly an article on McColgan that said that she'd had to put her marathon debut on hold. Mm-hmm. because she couldn't keep her blood sugar levels up while training. And when she did these long runs, her blood sugar was dropping because she took on carbs. Mm. 
So it's called it's called a reactive or rebound hyperglycemia. Remember that? Mm-hmm. So apparently McColgan has now gone and worked out with some scientists how best to solve that problem. And she's found a new carbohydrate drink. And there's an article that uh, Julia gave a link for, and I'll post that, that talks about testing that Elish McColgan did. Now, the, the article doesn't say what that testing involved. But good news is it comes from Leeds Beckett University. And they happen to be a big university in the rugby space. So I know a few people there. So I reached out to someone who works at Leeds Beckett, and I'm going to find out who these people were. I'm going to try and get them on the podcast. Yeah. Because it'll be really interesting to know why does Elish McColgan's sugar drop and what will they do to Mm. solve it? I spoke with a dietitian, the one at Leeds Beckett said she's worked with a cricketer who had that happen to them. They used to fall asleep on the boundary. And the solution was to... Some of the spectators are full of things. I was going to say, <laughs> that's what many of our listeners will be saying happens to them when they watch it. Well, here was a player watching it from the boundary and it happened. And uh, <laughs> apparently they solved that by looking at different carb-protein combinations in her food and so on. Obviously, you can't do that when you're trying to run a 221 marathon. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to find out what McColgan did. Yeah, I'll pop that in. And her mom, I mean, she's a former. I mean, she's running London Marathon. Mm. Um, from what I've seen recently, and her mom was a former winner, Liz McColgan of the London Marathon, and uh, one of the great marathon and track greats, yeah. racing against Alana May all those years ago in Dorota Tudi. And she also had, if I remember right, some nutrition issues because she was very skinny, lean, almost sort yeah. of uh, and I, skeletal in many ways, and just like her daughter, actually. Yeah, and so this phenomenon of reactive or rebound hyperglycemia is quite common in everyone when they eat before they exercise. Mm. If you had a meal, small meal or a top-up, whatever, and 15 minutes later you started exercising, the insulin from the meal Mm. plus the exercise causes that reactive drop, that rebound hyperglycemia, quite frequently. I've had it, you've had it, I'm sure everyone knows it. So in other words, what you're saying is the combination of insulin and exercise means that your sugar level drops. Because when you know we don't use insulin when we exercise. Exactly, that's the key. So when we're at rest and we eat, insulin levels go up. To process the sugar. Yeah, to help with the dispose, for, insulin, for sugar disposal, glucose disposal, storage and so on. So then the blood sugar drops. That's what insulin's job is, is to keep the sugar levels from becoming too high. Mm. Exercise does the same thing, obviously, because the muscles are consuming the glucose. So the combination of insulin plus exercise causes the drop. Right. So when you search on PubMed or any Google Scholar or whatever, you find a lot of articles on rebound hyperglycemia caused by eating before. What McColgan is saying is that she was taking this carb during running and it was causing that. Oh. So either she's got major glucose disposal at the muscle mm. or she's got insulin release despite exercise. Something, or maybe there's a third mechanism, mm. I don't know, but one of those things has to be happening. It's not common when you drink or eat during exercise mm. for it to, yeah. to happen. Before, yes. That's why you don't generally eat and then go 20 minutes later. But during I was going to say, I mean, that, that's a, a little bit of service advice there. I mean, if you yeah. do ex- if you do exercise, eating a, a fast digesting, high sugar carb, you want to have that just before you leave the door. Yes. I'll never forget the mm. time we, we, we had a coffee at, uh, in Cork Bay, mm. and then we had another one, but I didn't. Mm. And so I'd finished my coffee with two sugars 25 minutes before we eventually rode again, and 10 minutes later I was seeing stars. Yeah. And I've learned now that if we're going to, Stick around. I have to save my coffee for the five minutes before we leave. <laughs> Otherwise, I have this problem. So, must admit, I, did, I never thought about that. To be honest with you, I didn't know there was such a condition. But you're yeah. right; it, ma- it makes total sense. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. Timing is crucial. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for that, Julia. And yeah, lovely. I am I am gonna I have tried to reach out to these Leeds Beckett uh, researchers to find out exactly what they did. Would Hopefully, they share that that research? Not would they be allowed to give I hope so. <laughs> patient doctor confidentiality? I mean, I don't know. Well, it at worst she's gone to them because they're experts in the condition. Yeah. And so they can talk, so in, they general can talk in general terms. Yeah. I mean, it would be wonderful, be wonderful if they could talk about the case, but I get it if they can't. But, yeah. but we'll try and okay, get them we'll to talk chase in general it, yeah, terms. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then sort of semi-related, staying on theme, Edward Price got in touch uh, with an article that caught his eye. It's from Trail Runner Mag, and it talks about Camille Heron, who you know. Yes. One, of, one of the comrades as well. Reckon, yeah. And in this article, basically, it starts off, the headline is, Advice for Ultra Athletes, Skip the Long Run. Yes, I saw Which this. is classically you'd know this classically misleading headline because mm. she's not saying skip the long run. She's just saying do less of, not skip, it's lesser. Yeah. And so she she basically said that she attributed her performance improvements in her 40s to only doing one or two long runs a month and nothing over 22 miles. Now remember, she's running hundreds of miles. Mm. So her long run is not that long, relatively speaking. And her her comments on that serve as a catalyst for an article that eventually ends up exploring bone stress in runners. And it's interesting. It's stuff that I'd never read before. And one of the theories is she interviews some researchers from, let me just get this exactly right. Uh, she's Worcester Polytechnic Institute. She's the director of musculoskeletal mechanics lab. And they talk about that in this article. They say that, Bone is living tissue. It's mm. got a set point. And when you put bone under stress, it remodels. If the stress is too high, the bone fails to remodel and it breaks, <laughs> literally, actually, stress fractures. And if the stress is optimal, then it adapts and becomes stronger. And they talk about the sensitization of bone. So, and I'm quoting, just like your nose can become resensitized or desensitized. So, for instance, if you walk into a smelly room, it's really bad for 10, 15 minutes, but then you adapt. Yeah. Stop smelling bad. That's the analogy they use, by the way, in this article. I didn't come up with that one. <laughs> um, and they talk that bone cells might do the same thing. And so it's only really, they say, that you, in the first few miles of a run, that the stress is actually recognized. Mm. And after a while, distance running has diminishing returns. So you don't need that long run for the bone health. You can get the same bone benefit yeah. from the shorter part. And it's really interesting. I mean, it is a it is a it is a case of there's a lot of questions, only. but some, something for a more in depth story. Yeah, yeah, and so I'll post this link because mm -hmm. it really it really was. I'd I'd not seen the bone remodeling argument framed in this way. So for that reason alone, it was interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, thanks Edward and Jules for those two good good content on running, and both I think will serve as catalysts for future podcasts, which is cool. That's the whole point of your patron contributions. And then the very last one, and I kind of offer this as a segue into our main interview, mm -hmm. comes from Gene Williams. It says, people often talk about positive coaching, but often you see coaches shouting along the sidelines, is this positive coaching? Also, what's the difference between giving feedback and negative criticism? Can one say everything openly to players or not? So that's, that's an important question for coaches. Yeah. And it, it caught my eye, Gene's question, because it turns out in our interview, we asked a fairly similar question of, of Richard yeah. Sutton. I'm not going to give the game away. You stick around and you'll hear his answer to it. But yeah. he'll talk to you in a moment about how some players, and he'll tell you which ones, expect criticism. Mm. And if you don't criticize them, they probably think you aren't doing your job. 
yeah. other players' criticism will break. And so that's probably the art of coaching. So this again, it's one of those questions, short answer, but actually a lot of detail. And there's a lot to it that might be worth exploring as a how to coach, especially kids. Mm. You can imagine that the mm. margin of error in kids is way smaller. Mm. But our guest today will mm. give you further insights. Yeah, and on it that. doesn't tell you what you, it tells you things that you don't expect to hear. Actually, yeah, I was quite surprised at that. So yeah, so yeah, thanks yeah. to thanks yeah. to all you patrons. We've gone through four of yours today. Keep them coming. I love reading them, and we'll, as I say, we'll definitely bring them up in our short segment, but potentially even in the long one. So yeah. you keep that coming. Thanks. So let's get on to our interview of the day. And uh, we, as uh, Ross has just mentioned, his name is Richard Sutton. He is the founder of Sutton Health and the CEO of the Performance Code, a leading global business health and performance consultancy. He is an expert in his field. Richard works with CEOs, leadership teams and companies around the world, driving effective stress management, resilience promotion and performance re realization. If you all into those how-to books. But most importantly, the reason why we brought him onto the podcast is he's had more than 20 years of experience in the world of professional sport. He's worked with many top-ranked tennis players, winning Olympic teams, and he'll talk specifically about one country that he was involved with uh, very uh, interestingly. And uh, he's used a lot of that information, a lot of experience that he's done to write a series of books. And his latest book is one called Thrive, The Power of Resilience, which follows a book that was just before that called stress-proof the game plan and um, as I said at the start of this podcast when we first uh, got to know Richard it was always a we were struggling with the idea that okay I even asked him there as you'll see at the start of the interview is he a self self-help guru he kind of admits that he is but I found the interview with him full of amazing stories from a guy that's been very close to many top tennis players and also has unique insight into one of the one of one nation's particular sporting mm. culture yeah, that, that exploration of his time working with China, we'll give yeah. the game away, you can hear yeah. more detail in, uh, in a few minutes, was really interesting. Mm. Um, I, would, I would have loved to explore more, you know, and maybe, maybe he's never going to say it except over a beer or something, I don't know. But like the differences between them and the other athletes. Mm. And between, in fact, when you hear the list of tennis players he's worked with and he knows, it would be yeah, really Maria interesting. Sharapova's in there. Mm. Yeah. Interesting to know like what, mm. what it is that they have in common, what it is yeah, that makes them different. That. Yeah. Touched on it very superficially, but mm. it was really interesting for that point of view. Yeah. And his thoughts on coaching and resilience and adaptation was, I think, quite interesting. His, his, his personal story is the, is the platform for all of these things, I think, mm. because it's his mm. his through his eyes, what he has noted and having seen. And I think it's quite interesting to get there. And there's one nugget of information which you'll hear in it, which I've actually repeated to myself a little bit this week. And it's a story that he got from um, from a top tennis player. I won't even give that one away. Is that because you've been on deadline? And, and because I've been on deadline, but it talks about how <laughs> pressure is a privilege. And uh, Richard Sutton will explain that a bit more in this interview. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So Richard, welcome to the Science of Sports podcast. I know that you've just uh, moved to Cape Town, having been in Johannesburg and then 
sort of commuting to Dubai. So I'm sure you've had a busy couple of days, haven't you, the last, last couple of days since you've been here? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they say that moves are a pretty stressful event. Um, I had to draw on all resources, <laughs> especially with three kids under five. Well, you've, got, I mean, you've written a book on this, haven't you, The Stress Code, and uh, which is the, book uh, before, the one before you've launched the one Thrive Now. But, I mean, did you... Put on some of those resources when you were every, every resource. I actually had a conversation with my wife. Um, every day I accessed every every tool of the <laughs> toolbox to overcome the challenge. Is there, is there a section in, in the stress code about moving? No, but there should be. <laughs> there should be. A second edition. <laughs> a second edition with a, with a, a little like uh, extract of a house move with three kids. <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about uh, what's interesting when we looked at your books um, is that you've written the three books. The latest one, Thrive, The Power of Resilience. It's, maybe I'm taking a bit of liberties here, but would you describe it as a self-help book? Um, I know probably people who write books mm, like this probably don't want it. <laughs> a, a, yeah, I, I guess, I guess in, in reality it is. Um, it's, uh, I've tried to use um, a, quite a scientific grounding, as I do with all my books, um, as, as the vehicle to impart the knowledge. Um, but at the end of the day, it is, it is about motivating change and about uplifting one in difficult circumstances, oneself in difficult circumstances. So if you had to praise the, the current book, Thrive, what would you say it is, what is the main storyline in that book? What, what, what would you the main, if you were going to sell it to me? The main storyline is that we have no choice but to be resilient in the world that we live in. It's complex. It's, uh, it's challenging. It's it has insurmountable hurdles and setbacks uh, along the way, and uh, we have to develop this skill, which is resilience. And and it's not that difficult. Um, it's it's a collection of behaviours that, if we apply to our lives um, and we do it consistently, uh, we can actually manage not to take the pain away and the hurt and the frustrations, but but certainly we can come outside or come out the other end in a, a, a much improved capacity, more more skilled, more capable, and and through it stronger than ever. And not able to move without losing years in your life, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. Not weathered, beaten, tethered uh, across the line. We can all get across the line, but it's getting across the line in, in better better health than you did before the journey began. So what's interesting for us is the journey that you took to get here. So for those of you that have read your books, there's a lot of references to your history, particularly involved in sport. Just give us an idea. I mean, we know that you work with a lot of top tennis players. You work with the Chinese Olympic team. You've been involved in sports federations around the world. Just give us an idea about where that sporting experience comes from. The sporting, it was always a passion. It was always something that I wanted to be involved in. It, I, when, I, when I was young, it was this world that seemed to transcend reality. Um, you had these individuals performing superhuman feats, and it was this draw, and I never had the opportunity or probably never had the skill either to, to live in that world. And the next best thing is to work in that world. I think that's the, the default uh, the consolation prize, but it was, it's been an incredible journey. And I began the journey just kind of starting out with passion and as motivated as I possibly could be and trying to help junior athletes uh, achieve so their where potential. So was that, like sort of post-school? Post-school, like post-studying, you know, kind of getting getting into, you know, kind of those those early days and started right at the bottom, like uh, with, with novice junior athletes and Kind of managed to do okay there and, and worked away well. another tier and another tier and another tier and eventually kind of find yourself um, in national sports and then international sports and the same drive and the same motivation and but kind of the whole journey I mean my, my role was really to uplift and, and help with physical development mm -hmm. um, and physical capabilities within the given environment but it turned out to be a, a 2022 year masterclass in resilience I mean 
athletes from a psychological and emotional standpoint have incredible incredible capacities and mm. um, just being immersed in that environment actually helped me transcend some of the limitations that um, had stuck with me in my in my youth and in my childhood. So if you, I mean, you kind of give us a rough idea, but you got into the place where you were, if you look at some of your Instagram stuff, you've literally got photographs of every top tennis player that's ever been around, but You've mentioned before the podcast, people like Maria Sharapova be involved, very much involved in her career. What did you do for her? And maybe the next question is, tell us about the experience of working with a top tennis player like that. So, so from, a, from a tennis standpoint, it's, it's quite interesting because um, it's, it's a, almost a one-stop shop for any professional who works with tennis players. So if you come in hired as a, a physical therapist or physiotherapist, um, you're going to be expected to engage in, in the training. So that's, how you, that's how you started working with as a physical therapist. As a physical therapist. Now what does that involve? It's, it's treatments on a, on a daily basis, um, managing existing injuries, preventing future injuries, but your, your portfolio like expands and expands exponentially. Um, you're expected to engage in physical preparation, um, the prehabilitation, um, you're expected to be an expert in, in nutrition and diet, you're expected to mitigate potential risks in, in all areas that pertain to physicality. Um, so it becomes very expansive and you've got to upskill them. You've got to become an expert at dry needling. You've got to become an expert at uh, manual therapy. You've got to become an expert all around. And all the top players have this expectation. In, in the world of tennis, you, you can't travel with six people. Um, you can travel with your physical development person. You can travel with your coach and you can consult um, remotely with a psychologist, but that's pretty much the extent of the team. So, so when you're entering this sport, and this is something that I came to realize early on um, with, with some of the players I worked with in the formative years of my career, is that the expectations are great and you're going to have to go back and re-upskill like, like we have to do today. Every couple of years, we've got to upskill. And that was an, an ongoing journey, just this commitment to education, the commitment to self-improvement and aligning that to the players that have these expectations. And you say top players, it's, it's quite what's fascinating about this world and this experience is that the expectations at the different levels of the game are, are vastly different. So if you're working with a top 50 player, there's a certain set of expectations. You, you don't have to be skilled in all domains, but, but certainly certain areas that are important to them, the physical development side, the management of injuries, that's, that's an important space that you have to occupy. The minute you move to like the top 20, you have to have a, an additional repository of skills and move to the top 10 and now all of a sudden you're, being, you're managing the entire life you live with the player so mm. I lived at Maria Sharapova's house with her it's like there's this like kind of permanent exposure to the individual you become immersed in their world and very much the top 10 those who are consistently in the top 10 a big difference between those who enter the top 10 and those who are consistently there but within the, the top 10 the expectations are extremely high and the tolerance is extremely low and that's the reality of sport um, tolerance to? tolerance to competency so okay. you know if if you shine competent, that's great. Um, if you make you make a, a series of errors and and you you're not getting it the job done, you you will be taken off the job. And it's it's not like normal life in many respects because that margin is very narrow. Mm -hmm. um, it's you got to be performing at your best all the time, and it doesn't allow for family, and it doesn't allow for other relationships. It doesn't allow for anything. And that's why I made the call around forty to just you know this this is a life that I'm going to have to step away from because. You know, if I want another chapter for myself, um, it's not going to exist in this world, which is all immersed if you are to create a positive outcome from, from a role perspective. What was the period that you were involved with Sharapova? Uh, was, was, so, two things. Was she the first tennis player you worked with or nice. later on in the journey? And then, and then what period was you involved with it? 
So, so in the journey, it might I'll, I'll give you kind of a, a, a timeline on. So, from an international perspective, um, my, the first international client was Martina Navratilova, and that gives us a bit of age away on, on this one. <laughs> so, so I worked with her. She's in, a lot older. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a young guy, no. Um, so, so from a from a kind of career like starting point, she I was very fortunate. Um, I had a certain skill that was appropriate to her challenges at the time, and and I got to work with her for the last couple of years, three years of her career. And it was unbelievable. It was the greatest opportunity anyone could get. And from there, just that opened doors. I mean, if you've worked with one of the icons of the sport, it opens doors. And the next big client was a Russian, very formidable Russian, but ranked three in the world at the time, Nadia Petrova. Very, very strong player, very like feared. Her and Sharapova had a private rivalry. And then from there, moved to Merit Safin. Um, who uh, had uh, at one point a very fleeting point was number one in the world, but mm-hmm. uh, Merritt, uh, he was his own worst enemy, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the most talented guy on the tour. But uh, you know, just uh, just enjoyed a, a good time. And uh, Tommy Haas was another client as it moved moved in that. Uh, so Tommy Haas uh, was vacillating between about two and six in the world. So I had this kind of run of, of players, but. It's, I then moved to the Chinese, um, there was a few more, um, and then I moved to the Chinese uh, Tennis Federation, which was very exciting, uh, very difficult initially. Because culturally, that's, culturally that's it was a, a big, it's a big, big shift because mm-hmm. everything that we know and we understand and our approach to sport um, is different in China. Um, the, and also, tennis is the national sport of China, so the expectations are exceptionally high. Um, and they traditionally had not come <coughs> from um, a, a great... A great background. There wasn't much success in Chinese tennis up until those years. Is it really? Is it that big? I didn't realize that it was that big a sport. I thought so soccer would be the dominant sport there. <laughs> I, to be honest, I also didn't realize. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's because Chairman Mao actually. The, the history goes that Chairman Mao was a tennis enthusiast. That that was his passion. Um, so now the country has the, the same passion and. I was well, if every thousandth person plays it, there's a million tennis players. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's I think about the, Yeah, it's just volume, you know. Yeah. But but uh, interesting, you know. That's what's quite quite amazing about that experience is I was I was very fortunate, just as luck would have it. Um, I was working with them at a time where there were five really exceptional girls. Um, who who in Lina was one mm. of them, and she she won four Grand Slams, if I remember correctly, and ranked two in the world. Um, best historic tennis player in China. Um, probably one of the highest paid female athletes in the world um, mm-hmm. in history. And uh, and there were a couple of other girls who actually in the doubles, they ended up at number one um, in the singles in the top 15, mm-hmm. uh, top 20 at least. Um, Jingji, uh, Yanji, like there were, there were a couple of like really very... And I was fortunate. It was just the right time, right place, right team. And you um, were working as a physical therapist? For I was working at physical development. Now That's my portfolio has expanded, you know. So now wow. it's, it's all tennis-specific training. It's... Uh, uh, looking after recovery and it's looking after the potential for injuries and, and China has a high volume mentality in terms of training um, so very high high volume recovery is not emphasized and that to bring a lot of like kind of uh, therapeutic modalities and also had to manage the volume uh, a little bit more carefully um, which which helped in terms of injury prevalence and mm. I mean it, what's interesting is how you got in there because obviously China must have a lot of resources that of their own did they bring you in because of your experience with players before other players yeah, i think uh, the chinese um have a tradition or his, certainly a history of kind of watching 
the movers in a sport mm. and and bringing them in, drawing them in, uh, gaining expertise, getting an understudy, and the understudy will then take over the portfolio. Um, so so just it, at the time, I just working with the right coaches. Um, Tommy Haas's coach was uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Hobbs Hogstead. Um, very uh, this remarkable coach. He had this potential to bring any player to number one in the world. Uh, he just had this passion and this energy and this enthusiasm and real commitment for the for the sport and. I was fortunate to work with him several times. He got then hired as the national coach. And because of that relationship, that opened one of the doors. Um, so that, that certainly uh, helped the process. Mm. Um, and and that once the door was open, he actually left and I continued to stay for several years. Um, and I, my portfolio in, in China actually expanded. Um, so from tennis, I kind of got uh, asked to consult in, in other sports, part of the Olympic program um, on more kind of an oversight, uh, oversight in an oversight capacity. But, but so the the journey continued, and then and then I got to a point where living and working. Just to, I mean, just to, I'm fascinated to hear about the, the Chinese experience before you continue, because as I said at the start, culturally, but it's a tough thing. There's also the, the 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 way that they train. You have this idea when you look at Chinese athletes; they're sort of almost like like motors. You know, there's a mechanical side to them, but they just like they're out there. They've got they play a certain way. There's not the same flair that you find in sort of European players. I mean, what is the mentality around Chinese sports in general? Is it an unforgiving kind of dictatorial space or is it a far better than we think it is? No, I think it's far worse than we realize it is. Really? Uh, more than that. So my, my first exposure, I kind of arrived in Beijing, very excited by the project. I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm on my part and I'm very expectant and I've got all these resources. If you if you need the kind of top of the range like underwater treadmill, you've you've got it. Like whatever you need, it's it's at your disposal and they've got the resources. And I remember my first meeting and I think it was a deputy to the Minister of Sports and he chaired the meeting and it's like all, all members um, uh, that, that participated in this team and other teams part of the Olympic Federation got the briefing and, and the briefing was fundamentally is that um, the expectation is to push their athletes harder in preparation for the Olympic Games. And from my side, I, I kind of intervened or interjected and said, look, I mean, they go, their volumes are higher than any other athlete I've ever seen. How much more can they tolerate your injury prevalence at 60, 65%? Um, yeah, we actually have to stop being more strategic about this. And it was through a translator, there was a bit of a pause. And the response was that you will push them harder. And if they break and, and if they get injured, we'll replace, ones, them. Yeah. we'll replace them. Yeah. And if you don't do what I tell you, we'll replace you. And that was my first introduction to the mentality of China. It was quite a, a hard, you know, I expected to have some sort of say, you know, just from my background in the sport itself. Um, but the, the truth is that kind of say had to be earned, you know, the respect and the credibility. I needed another year to be able to have that conversation um, before there was any respect. And it was premature. But, but notwithstanding, I still cut back in volume. Um, I still managed the, the athletes to the best of my ability from what I understood and what I knew. And, and fortunately, there, there was this recovery. And with that success and with the success came the credibility and the voice and the say that, that, that followed. So, but and how it, does that principle of pushing them as hard as possible to translate to the athletes? Do the athletes have an expectation that they just have to work until they break? Or do they try and resist it and avoid it? There's no avoidance because there's a whole kind of undercurrent of of control that exists in China. So if you make it to the national team, um, there are incentives, incentives for your family. Um, you, your passport now goes to the government. Um, so you can only travel subject to their um, approval. 
there's you paid a salary, but you don't get your salary. This is from my time with the conversations of the athletes mm. I worked with. I might be very different now. Mm. Um, but but at the time it was you know that there was a certain degree of control and there were certain expectations. You didn't give it a hundred percent, you might lose some of the benefits, not oh. yourself but your family. If you didn't do well at the All China Games or the Asian Games or the Olympic Games, if you didn't do as per expectation, mm. your salary you might not receive. Um, and that's for the entire four year period or three year period or whatever the, the block is normally every two years or whatever. So, so there was a, a tremendous amount of pressure on the athletes to fulfill their expectations and their mandate, and it created a, a, a huge kind of mental and an um, emotional weight within the environment. They did what they needed to, and they knew that they would get replaced, and the parents would lose the perks if they got replaced. And so they pushed and they pushed and they pushed, and they would break down, and you know, kind of they get patched up, and they would break down again and get patched up. But, but there's a, a tremendous work ethic. They they live to work. Um, there's you know they don't work to live. It's, they live to work and I, I found that um, the athletes I became very close to them um, exceptional exceptional people um, I, I found that from a relationship perspective there's a tremendous empathy and a kindness and a warmth and, and I also learned something about work ethic they have this incredible work ethic maybe gets pushed beyond um, physiological laws and principles but at the same time the, you know, this capacity to do what you need to so you can do what you want to really is is very central to their ethos. Is their work ethic, for instance, because I can appreciate that collectively it's been created in like a group that on average or even per thousand people, but if you compare the work ethic of a best Chinese athlete to Tommy Haas or to, okay, maybe really Safran out of this, but the other athletes, is it the same? Like, is there a minimal work ethic required to be an elite athlete and there's just more of them with it in China? Or is theirs actually higher? So I think it's inculcated as as a child. Um, so you generally find, I mean, Tommy Haas, an exceptionally talented individual. He didn't have to do it. The volume was not mm. his thing. Um, so you'd have short training sessions, high quality training sessions, step off the court and do what he needed to do, like media or whatever it is. Um, from a, a Chinese standpoint, is is you, you they're more robotic, less creative um, in the sport of tennis. It is. Mm. Um, they rely a lot more on physicality. Um, they rely a lot more on grit and, and persistence. And they, they train accordingly. So the, the work ethic, you know, there's, there's an expectation that you will be training for between three and four hours in the morning. Whereas you look at some of the Russian players or some of the German players, American players, the expectation is two and a half hours. Or top mm. three at, at most at a stretch. And the afternoon will be some supplementary training, but not too difficult. Whereas the Chinese players, there's another big, there's going to be another practice session plus a supplementary training. And this will take place at least six days a week. And there might be a kind of lighter session on the seventh day. But... The, the work ethic is, is extremely like it's robust, um, it's intense, uh, and, it's, and it's very entrenched from, from those early days. So, I, just, I mean, just to expand a little bit on it, in that experience, having worked with them and also working with players, you know, the Russians and the Germans, is it possible, I suppose it is, but I'd like to hear your answer on it, to use the, the stick rather than the carrot? I mean, I, I find it. You always talk about in the sort of in the modern context, like you've got to encourage people. That's how they become great. It seems almost impossible that you can just basically use a big stick for somebody to become great, because essentially you want them to enjoy and feel motivated to continue to train. So it seems sort of counterproductive that they would use a stick, for lack of a better term, than use a carrot. Well, there's a carrot also, right? Like it's the carrot of now the family's being looked mm -hmm. after. So they would see themselves as highly motivated 
by the, the possibility of earning a reward, I would have thought. So it's an interesting thing. Punishment comes after. But the punishment is losing the reward. Yeah. So it's a stick in a way, isn't it? No, no. I think it's it's very much a... a, a, It is a stick in the carrot as a a combination. But I think that one has to kind of look at... If you look at Olympic champions from a a great study by Fletcher, 2012, looking at resilience and performance outcomes, 12 Olympic champions, what were the common denominators? What were those psychological factors that ensured success and one of those factors was motivation um so a motivated athlete is an athlete who's able to be successful and then kind of diving into motivation you know where is the best form or, or what what is the best driver of motivation so certainly fear um, fear will wake us up make us more alert and we'll understand that if we don't kind of get our, our act together it's, it's going to be challenging or the circumstances are going to be unfavorable so fear can initiate and drive a process, but it's not lasting. It's fleeting, and it's very difficult. If you're driven by fear and failure and setbacks, and you're driven by by these negative facets, um, what the study revealed was that it's not not a great, and it's not certainly not a great motivator, not a long term motivator. And when looking at successful Olympic champions, those who, when it when it counts, are able to to win the gold medal, what was uncovered was that those athletes who are motivated by love of the game, joy derived from the sports, the the feeling of being appreciated and valued for what you do and what you contribute to the sports, um, passion, enthusiasm, all these kind of positive motivators, it almost transcends from motivation, which is, is transient, to inspiration, which is more kind of long-term and, and has... So it's an interesting thing because when you look at motivation, the ideal context of motivation is a little bit of fear in the beginning and then shifting it into passion and joy and, and those positive facets. And that was one of the challenges I experienced within the, the Chinese construct is that it was a very fear-driven, uh, with very fear-driven environments. And I don't think, I think there was incredible talent, incredible depth. And I don't think there was the fullest expression of potential in the team, um, on, on many, not just the tennis team, but other teams as well, uh, be, because of this misguided motivation to kind of get to your point. I think that's the, the the stick and the carrot in that context was wasn't the best environment to bring out the best in what mm. talent that and they had huge depth which was never fully actualized at that time that Don was in invasion. And how does this play in, for instance, to the personality of the athlete? Like you're working now with an athlete, you're their physical preparation person, but clearly you're gonna to have to manage a lot of emotion in order to get access to that physical realization. Now, you'll get athletes who respond very negatively to any criticism or even challenge? Or is that filtered out by the time you work with these athletes? So it's a, a strange a strange expectation because the expectation is criticism. Mm. So when, when you're working with the athlete, there's an expectation that you're going to criticize the millimeters. Mm. There's like weight. I'm not that. talking about the Chinese athletes. No, no the Chinese athletes. The Chinese athletes. But I'm talking Chinese. about everyone now. No, 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 everyone. No, no. I mean, I want to, because obviously most people listening to this and having yeah, experienced that <laughs> side of the, the wall, as it were, hypothetical. Yeah, so I'm talking in general, but yeah. maybe the Chinese represent an extreme example yeah, on one end of the spectrum. But I'm interested in others, and not even just tennis players. If you have other examples where I've known in rugby, for instance, I've worked a little bit in the sevens, and some players respond very well to negative criticism. They want you to condemn them and publicly shame them in front of the team. Call him out, and he'll be a he'll he'll turn into a demon in the next game. Other players shrink in response to the same thing, and so. You needed a soft touch. You needed encouraging words, positive affirmation as opposed to criticism. And I wonder whether 
there's a pattern that you see more in elite athletes than than, than others. So from I think it is very individual, like like you pointed out. Uh, a certain degree of emotional awareness um, is mm. quite important, and receptiveness to the environment. And the, that receptiveness, interesting enough, is is driven by oxytocin. So there's a, a neuropeptide that drives this ability to perceive our environment and make the right decisions based on that environment that are going to bring about the best outcome. Um, so being in strong teams, united teams, you'll be able to understand the individual um, on a better level because of um, raised or increased oxytocin amongst all members of the team. But but there are there are certain individuals. Uh, my experience is that um, if there's going to be a criticism, make it you know uh, make it or create a private environment for that criticism as opposed to more in a, a team dynamic. Um, praise absolutely is a, an incredible motivator in a in a team environment or a broader environment. Um, so, so I think that uh, I've, I've always operated. I've always preferred the operate the, the model of of praise, reward, affirmation. Um, it's obviously authentic. Um, so, following following successes and following milestones that have been achieved, um, the, the praise is coming, and to try and do it as publicly as possible. And and by doing so, again, you've got the dopamine hit um, in response to that. You've got greater oxytocin expression, and and that kind of makes for more motivation, makes for more connectivity, and. And there are times where you have to be realistic and there are areas that need to be uh, addressed and, and challenges that need to be addressed. And I, I would prefer to kind of remove the individual from the team, um, have the conversation mm-hmm. in private capacity. So I think it's, 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 everyone has their own style. And I can't say what works and what doesn't work, but, but that's been my experience. Coming back to motivation, and I know we spend a lot of time on tennis, but I think it's really interesting. Why, why is it that you think that we've seen three men at the top of the sport for 20 years maybe and in that same period, 30 easily women. Is there something you can attribute that to? Um, I think, for one, it's been a, a remarkable era for men. Yeah. Um, I mean, three exceptional individuals, Novak, um, Rafa, and, and Roger. And I, I, was, I was very privileged to, to get to know all of them. Um, very different personalities. Novak was the self-built athlete um, where he just made all the right decisions pertaining to his environment and his nutrition and his training. He had the inherent talent, but... He really expressed the talent based on the decisions he made um, around him. Um, and he testifies to that in, in his book, um, Serve to Win. But as, as opposed to somebody who is more kind naturally, of guided by somebody else. Yeah, so, so no, it's, there are individuals who, who guided him. But mm-hmm. the decision was to create the perfect environment um, for him to self-actualize. Uh, a guy like Roger, who's just incredibly talented. Um, I think that almost in any environment, in any circumstance, there was a period of time where didn't really matter. Uh, he he was just he had this level of ability that exceeded or defied imagination. Um, there were two three years where he was just mm-hmm. unbeatable, and then you've got Nadal, whose whose work ethic was the driver. Um, his humility, his worth ethic. So very different personalities, but all kind of brought their set, and and it was incredible because they all have their own records um, that will very unlikely be beaten or or, or matched in in history. All these incredible records, but um, they're all unique. At the same, they're competing against, and perhaps it was the rivalry between mm. um, certainly Rafa and and Roger for a period of time, and then Novak later on. But perhaps it was this this pressure that just kept raising the bar, raising the bar, raising the bar with these great opponents. The women's game, it's it's different. I don't I don't think we you know we had that era of Martina, um, Chris Evertz, uh, we had. But but we we come up, sometimes overlook Serena, her presence on the team. She she dominated. I mean, her her record stands mm. stands 
un, unmatched. I mean, that, that was one yeah, of Yeah, so she's the one exception. The one exception. But I mean, um, if I look at like the Grand Slam draw from Australia, there, there, would, there would have been easily half a dozen, maybe a dozen former Grand Slam champions on the women's side. And they're falling in the second round, third round, former number ones, all over the place. The average period of number one for a woman player must be about three weeks. <laughs> it's, it is I'm exaggerating now. Yeah, no, it's a, 100%. It's just always struck me as so amazing that they, so many get to the top and win a Grand Slam title and they're never to be seen again. Yeah. I don't know whether that's obviously in, held up against the men's game. It's like unbelievably different. But I wonder if that's a pattern that repeats over history and, and why it might, might be that... that and maybe, maybe actually you're right. The men's pattern currently is atypical. Yeah, it is atypical. And uh, the ability to motivate once you've achieved success actually must diminish. Because now what, what more is there? If you, if you don't do it for the love of it, you do it to win, then you win. Now what? But then you've got a rival like a, a Novak so, and a Fedra that there's this on right. this. You, you don't want to lose. This is, this, is, this is more than this. is more than a game. This is more than a match. This is, this is a battle. It's an existential mm. battle against two uh, fierce opponents. But... But the woman, I think the women's game is is more homogenous. I don't, I don't think that um, you have these disparities. You know, in in the top ten in men, it's 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 tough. I mean, it's the standard in the top ten, and you kind of look beyond the top ten. It's, it's not as strong. Women's game, you know, anyone on any given yeah. day is is able to to beat one of the top ten players. And, uh, but there there was an era where um, I go back to the early two thousands where there was five or six women who were very strong and stayed up at the top for a long period of time. Justine Hinnan, uh, Kim Clasters. Um, you had um, a couple of um, Russian girls at the same time. Maria was there. There was there were a couple of players that did did hold their own um, and dominated the sport for a period of time. I think just at this particular point, um, it it seems to be a, a no dominant force as opposed to the men's game where there's a, a handful of players that again are exerting a dominant mm. force. I suppose it goes to the point, and you see this a lot in team sports where it's easy. It's not easy, but it's much easier to win than to stay winning. That's the challenge. And so in football, for instance, okay, football's skewed by the financial disparities that allow two or three teams to have 80% of the money. Spain and Spain's football is always won by one of two teams, the occasional third. Paris Saint-Germain will win every French league. So it looks a bit skewed there. But when there's a degree of parity, winning, staying as a winner stays very difficult. And I wondered what your thoughts were on, on that and how you would counteract that. I think I think that um, you're hunting right, and that's one of the, the statements I often make. It's one thing to win; it's a great mm. achievement to become you know world number one, or to become world number two, or, or to win a Grand Slam, or to win an event, or win a tournament. It's a great achievement, but to repeat that achievement over time that's that's what defines the greats. Um, and I, I think that once that's been achieved, a lot of a lot of individuals, a lot of teams, kind of reinforce what they've been doing. They don't go back to the drawing board and look at, at possible opportunities for improvement, um, possible areas to explore in order to raise the bar again. Um, so I think that that's, that could be something that could be explored um, once once you do get to the top. It's, I think the work just begins. Mm -hmm. um, I, to stay at the top, that's got the, the, the real challenge in, in life. So I think if any team can, once they've achieved success, or any individual once they've achieved success, um, can, can now intensify efforts and actually almost double up on efforts in, in all areas of the game, psychological, physical, tactical, technical, um, uh, the recruitment, the, the succession, the you know succession planning of the, of the team, I think that, that that's the only opportunity that I can see for continued success. In a couple of occasions in the book, you mentioned, you know, obviously talk about your experience in the tennis game, there was a... Lovely story with um, Billie Jean King. Yeah. Just, just maybe you could retell that because that was, there was lessons from that which come into the book quite strongly. 
So Billie Jean King, I've got I got to know Billie Jean King from my time with Martina Navratilova. They were friends. Uh, Billie Jean was a mentor of Martina's. And um, I, I, it wasn't a very close relationship, but there was, you know, I'd recognize her, say, hello, how are you doing? You know, the, the kind of small chit-chat, small talk. And uh, I just recently be appointed um, athletic director for the Chinese Olympic team and, um, and specifically the, the tennis program. And I was sent to Wimbledon. I've been there for six, seven months, and I've been struggling with the, the different environment. It was a new, unique environment. You had no authority, no control, no support. Um, you were very isolated. Um, it, it was an environment that I wasn't equipped for and wasn't coping with and affected me men- mentally, emotionally, physically. And, in, in every way, I started to decline in, in terms of my well-being and my competence. Did you feel quite isolated? Totally isolated. It was, yeah. it was the experience of COVID with, mm-hmm. on steroids. I mean, that's the only way to describe it because mm-hmm. there's no phone, no internet. can't speak the language. You've got an interpreter from certain hours of the day. And, and you go into these kind of solitary rooms and that's it. And you come out again. Yeah, you had to stay in the training facility, Tra- didn't you? Exactly. You couldn't move out of those training facilities. Very limited access mm-hmm. um, in and around Beijing. And also, you, you don't know what to do and where to go and how to go. You, you have no, no previous knowledge or knowledge of the environment. So, so I must say that it did take a toll. And it took a toll very quickly. Within a couple of weeks, I started noticing um, an emotional shift and a, a physical shift. I got sick all the time. Permanently sick, actually. Um, and managed to kind of survive six, seven months, got to Wimbledon, which is um, a compulsory event before the Olympic Games with the five uh, very exceptional tennis players that I mentioned earlier. And um, the minute I, I got to London, it was just very refreshing. I had communication, you know, I had all the comforts that I was used to. I had a, a social structure. I had uh, Facebook. I had, yeah, everything was kind of reignited, the, the world and the reality I once knew. And it almost parallels COVID. You were going to this dark time. And, and COVID was terrible. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think anyone enjoyed the experience. There are people who say that they love the isolation and, and the family time, but uh, I, I think it was uh, <laughs> really miserable. Um, and coming out of this experience, and, and remember the first day, you know, like you're allowed to go to restaurants from after COVID and you're out and about and you're just seeing the world and the lightness mm-hmm. that you felt. And I felt that experience in, in the UK. And, and with how the Wimbledon works is you've got the, obviously qualifying and, and then, you know, if the players go through to, to the final week, you're looking at about five weeks, the, the entire trip. And so the first couple of weeks are fantastic. Every single day getting stronger, more motivated, more clear, emotionally more like stable and, and, and everything coming together. Um, and it got to a point where just absolutely loving life, didn't really want to go back to this Chinese environment. It's not because I didn't love the work that I did, but the environment itself was very oppressive. Mm. And um, there was a sudden realization, I think it was in the final week of the tournament, one player was left and she was in the semifinals. I think she was facing Serena Williams, who was in formidable form. There was no, no one's going to be Serena if Wimbledon on grass. No one's. Okay. Um, and it was, it was great. This, this uh, Chinese athlete, I think she went from like 300 in the world to 60 in the world in that tournament. I mean, that's how she, she moved the line. It was, it was quite profound. But there was this realization of this return to Beijing that was imminent. It was one more match to go and we were going back. And, and all those emotions was like a, going back into lockdown now. How, how would we feel and how do we experience that? It's like the, the sinking feeling. And so the, the address, the State of the Nation address today. And the announcement is that we're all going into lockdown just as a, a safeguard. Um, so it was this realization going back and basically all these emotions and, and all the experiences kind of flooded back and feeling very low, very down, and very dejected. I went down to the gym, got onto a bike, and was pedaling away. And um, next to me was Billie Jean King, who's also cycling, and we got chatting. And 
it was quite a remarkable time for Chinese tennis because they transcended um, the limitations of the past. Like what, year, what year was this? This was like 2008. Yeah, yeah, yeah 2008. Yeah. And uh, and we're talking about you know just uh, some of the, the milestones that have been achieved. I and mean, could could you believe that a Chinese athlete's in the semi-finals at Wimbledon? Is, and she actually, I think she had to qualify for the event. That's what made it even more remarkable. Wow. She didn't have a rank to actually get into the event. She got a, she got a wild card for qualies and managed to get to the the semi-finals. So it's quite a remarkable journey. But you know, halfway through a conversation, uh, she kind of looked at me and said, "Look, you're not the same. You you seem very low. Your energy is poor." Yeah, it's what's going on. And, and up until that point, I've gone through these six, seven months of, of challenge and struggle. I haven't really communicated to anyone. You know, you've got to kind of emotionally suppress and you've got to show grit and you've got to show determination and persistence and you've got to represent what you want your athletes to be. And, and it was all a facade at the end of the day. And this is the first kind of somehow, I don't know if it was the circumstance of Billie Jean or just the fact that I admire and respect her so much, but just thought of opening up and saying, look, I'm really struggling with, with the situation. I'm, I'm not coping under current set of circumstances. I've been really down. I've physically been compromised. I don't know what to do. And, and, and she listened very patiently. So the first time I shared my experience. Why are you sitting there cycling? Well, I'm cycling. Honestly, I've never cycled so <laughs> That's long. That's surreal. <laughs> and uh, she kind of stops for a moment and, and she, she says, well, you know, I'm going to tell you two things. And, and they've helped me in my journey. And, and Billie Jean fought every fight and, and won every battle. I mean, so started the WTA. She Women's rights, gay rights, uh, equal pay. I mean, there's nothing she hasn't for animal rights even. Yeah. Um, and she's won every battle, every single battle uh, against huge odds. And uh, she said, the two things I, I want to tell you is that the first thing is that champions adapt. Champions adapt. You know, that's like, and up until that point, I, it really hadn't like crossed my mind that the biggest challenge I had was I was bringing all old experiences and old models and the models that had worked in other countries, SA, Russia, Germany, US, wherever it was, of bringing these models into a new environment which weren't connecting to the athletes, the team. And I was, I was a casualty of this experience, not the team. Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing she told me was pressure is a privilege. The fact that you are given such a high profile position um, at, at the age that you are um, with the experience that you have is, is, is an absolute gift. And up until that point, again, it was just another another realization in that every everything I'd looked at was very skewed. It was all negative. I was seeing every bad thing, every challenge, everything I'd lost. I was I was looking at the loss, not the gain. And kind of those two concepts, um, I stewed with those two concepts for a day or two. We went back uh, pretty much the, the player lost, and on the plane back, I thought, okay, look, I'm, she's right. I, I'm going to try and apply this to my life, and and hopefully, I'm able to change the situation. And, so the pressure is a privilege. I mean, that's the classic reframing strategy. I'm um, seeing the advantage and seeing the, the opportunity and the crisis or the challenge. And made a little note, put on my computer, that this is a one-time opportunity. Um, just every single day, I had to remind myself because motivation is fleeting. So there was this reminder of the, the gift that's embedded in this, in this pain. Uh, the, second, the second thing was this adaptability. Now, champions adapt. I guess I chose in sport because I wanted to be like athletes at the end of the day. So I wanted to be a champion in my role and my contribution, but I didn't know really what to do. And so I thought I want to adapt, but I don't know how to. And the first place to start maybe is to connect better to the team. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to understand where they're coming from, the culture. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to try, and I say try because I was really bad, um, try to Mandarin. Um, that's going to be my attempt. And what I chose to do was to bind myself to the team a little bit better through, I asked senior members, about five senior members of the team, 
to teach me five words a day. And my expectation was that one might agree or five agreed, so not 25 words a day. <laughs> um, that was the commitment. But just by, by doing that, um, it opened like communication channels. It was a trust that started to evolve. Um, I think it also showing my vulnerability and showing the, the fragility of my experience also kind of connected with the athletes who are also in, in a very fragile place and fragile state because of the pressure that they're mm-hmm. under. And what happened was in a, in a period of weeks, it, it was very, very quick. And within a period of weeks, the whole experience um, had transformed from this very oppressive experience of and very isolated and solitary experience to an oppressive experience, but as part of a group, as part of this united front that you know all want the same thing. And what's what's quite incredible is that once I connected to the team and had the social support, and once I'd opened up to a, a village and king, and once I seen the different perspectives, my whole reality shifted. At the end of the day, the issue was me. It was like it wasn't the team, it wasn't the environment, it wasn't the fact that it's culturally different was me. I hadn't changed. I hadn't changed my model. Um, and I was the casualty of that lack of change. And I think that it's a big lesson that all athletes and all of us can learn um, is the importance of real-time adaptability. But what's interesting is that... Did you think that she, in her career, I mean, it's difficult to say, with, with those lessons that she was telling you about, do you think fundamental to her success in I her do, career? I do, because they, she really kind of lives and embodies those principles. Mm. Um, so I think that she, she, I mean, she, if you know a little bit about her life history, I mean, what she experienced and, and what she was exposed to was, I mean, public hostility, um, you know, the, the ridicule, uh, she was talented um, she was really, really talented, which held her in good stead. But, but at the same time, um, I, I can't imagine the pain that she experienced on a day-to-day basis. And I think that she did live by those principles and kept it simple. Two narratives, I think there's a couple more, but two big themes, two big narratives, and that just see the opportunity in the crisis. And, and be able to change and, and, and adapt yourself to an environment so that you don't become um, a casualty of it. But just to kind of close the story, what's interesting about this whole journey was that about two weeks into my arrival of Beijing, all I wanted to do was resign. The, the, my, my ambition, my daily ambition was to resign. But the, the reality was a national program, and you wouldn't be allowed to resign. Uh, it's... Once you're in, you're in, um, and there's no one to replace you, and you, you cannot compromise the team in any way, shape, or form. The government will not allow that. So subconsciously, I knew I couldn't resign, but what I tell myself is this, I've used this carrot so that tomorrow I will resign. So you theoretically have the opportunity, but in reality, you don't have the opportunity. So every day, I'd wake up in the morning and say, look, I'm going to get through the morning, and I'm going to resign in the afternoon. So I'd get to the afternoon and say, okay, well, you can resign tomorrow. Okay? Same thing. I go through the same cycle every single day. I'm going to write, resign tomorrow, resign tomorrow. Literally one day at a time. So I've got six, seven months. And then, you know, the, the, the Olympic Games concludes. Um, China actually wins the Olympic Games. Uh, so we're a milestone in history, I think, first time ever. Because you're involved more than just the tennis. At this yeah, point. so you get pulled into other, other portfolios, consulting for the rhythmic gymnastics and, and just on, on all levels in terms of, of structure and, and shaping. It was largely of the success of the tennis team, actually, that, that got me more exposed to the other athletes. I'm interested, sorry, like why when you take the job, you wouldn't say to yourself, I'm going to get to the end of the Beijing Olympics. That would, be, that would seem to me to be such a significant aspirational milestone that I figure in my, if I were me, I'd be like, just make it to the 24th of August or whatever the date was that it ended. So, As opposed to like your method of day to day. So it was so oppressive. 
Um, so that was my initial, like my initial, yeah. like first two weeks to yeah. go to the games. So the first two weeks, it was like, just, uh, so this is not pleasant. Don't really want to be here, but just get to the games. Only like a year away or whatever it is. And it's still got a long time. No, it's a long time. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, we, I don't think we can actually, from a neuroscience perspective, we can't see that far. I started like shortening the aperture, mm. uh, the, the aperture to, or, you know, just like tomorrow, tomorrow, just get, keep the head down tomorrow, do the best you can tomorrow, do the best you can tomorrow. But like running a marathon. Yeah. Running the yeah. Sort of table. yeah. So, so the thing is that in reality, I, so the reality, well, I, I couldn't resign and I, I wouldn't resign and I want to see through the end of, of the Olympic Games. But, but, so I had this opportunity every single day I want to resign. Um, I didn't want to be there, no matter what the occasion, no matter what the, 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 the gift of the experience perceivably was. At the time, I didn't want to be there until I made this shift, this fundamental and monumental shift. And then I, I became vastly different in, my, in myself in the experience. And then, then the day arrives. The Olympic Games are not finished. Um, the team has won. It's like the night, the, the game, the closing ceremony is finished. Now it's an opportunity. I can resign. And I signed on for another two years. <laughs> I loved the experience so much. I was so immersed in the team. I, I couldn't actually, I suppose, be four years, but then I got another job opportunity. Mm-hmm. But but I, I really loved my time in China, and it was very hard to leave. It was a very, very painful decision to actually, uh, two years later, to move from Beijing. In your, in your mindset, your view of how these things work, is there any challenge or circumstance that is insurmountable? No. And you, you can always adapt, and you can, you can always... Yeah, I think that one, you know, there's adversity um, and there's trauma. So one has to distinguish between the two. A, a loss of someone close to you is trauma. Uh, we have to grieve and we have to be part of uh, another cycle. But adversity, I think that we were hardwired for it. I think that we are capable, all of us are capable of overcoming adversity. The difference from a resilient standpoint to a non-resilient standpoint is that we can get across the line. Um, all of us can. Uh, we, but if we're not resilient, it's, it's beaten and worn and weathered and, and scarred. If we are resilient, we can get get across the line and, and ready for the next challenge and ready for the next race and ready for the next. So I think that if we are adaptable enough and we have the skills and we have the psychological and behavioral resources, I think that we can achieve far more than we realize that we can achieve. And I've, I've been taught that lesson experientially many times. But might it be that there are circumstances where it would be better for me to change the environment than myself? Because like champions adapt, but maybe actually uh, like Novak Djokovic, for instance, and change the environment so that and sometimes you'd get situations where you wouldn't want to change yourself. You actually just need a new environment and you can be yourself. So what tennis players change as coaches all the time. Yeah, you know, but I think, no, it's a good point. I can, I can think of, I can think of very, sports trivial by comparison mm-hmm. to being in an abusive relationship. Yeah. You could adapt to that, but maybe you should just leave it. 100%. And like on the more trivial spectrum, I think, there's, and this is one of the, the, not a problem, but I think it's one of the challenges with the, the grit narrative, like of Duckworth, yeah. is it, it taught people to stick with it, stick with it. And to borrow a cliche, sometimes the first thing you've got to do when you're in a hole is stop digging the hole. Yeah. And so at what point does an athlete, for instance, have to recognize that actually sticking with this is damaging and I need to make a change instead of trying to adapt? I think it's a cost-benefit um, discussion. So... So Novak, Novak Djokovic, we, we can say he changed the environment, but he actually adapted. Um, so his, his whole story was adaptability. He ate a certain way, he trained a certain way, he practiced a certain way, and he realized it was not working for him. It was not bringing him to his fullest potential, and he made the adaptations. Mm. And the adaptations was creating, ultimately culminated in creating a new environment for himself. Mm. Um, sometimes it's a micro environment, sometimes it's more on a macro level. 
But uh, to your point, I think that one has to understand that environment's more more powerful than almost any influence. And uh, if you want to, if you have an aspiration, you have a vision, and you want to achieve success in your life, um, the, the best way to create it. I mean, there are times where you have to adapt yourself in order to uh, uh, overcome the hurdle and the obstacle and the setback and the, the failures and, and everything that comes about with it. But Ultimately, if we can create the opportune environments for ourselves, uh, environments that are enriched um, and supportive of our aspirations, that that is is first price. Um, but sometimes not achievable. Because I think that where I see this play out a lot in sports, and I wanted to get your thoughts on talent pathways, is you get a young athlete in a talent pathway, and they're very successful until often like the adolescent watershed, and then they change physically. And the physical changes they undergo actually move them away from being successful in that sport. And they'd be better off leaving it. But because society says stick with it, stick Mm -hmm. with it, like persist, adapt. Actually, no, at some point I'm never going to be a a basketball player because I stopped growing at 14. So there's a constraint that's created that's insurmountable. That's why I asked earlier. And actually you're better off moving into a different track and diversifying as opposed to sticking with it. And I worry sometimes that the grit narrative paints people into a, a path that they should have actually escaped from. So, so I think that, you know, we want to almost disentangle grit from adaptability. Yeah. Um, so the previous notions of Brazilian were very grit-orientated. It was persistence and grit, and you're just pushing, you push, mm-hmm. and you do what you're doing, and you, you repeat doing what you're doing. And that, and that, by the way, like I know this from David Epstein in the States, his wife is a, very involved in education. They've created a problem around grit by doing that. Is they've said to kids that as long as you just stick with it, you will succeed. And there's some kids who shouldn't do maths, like <laughs> fact of the no. fact of life. And they've created like a, a, a an army of people who are disenfranchised and disgruntled because they've been forced into a track that they shouldn't have been in. You know that 100. And that, and that, that same thing resonated. is going to happen in yeah. sport now, where you say actually. Play five or six sports till you're 14, three or two or three till you're 17, and then pick. Yeah. But don't commit. So that's, uh, I think what you're describing is, is what I, I refer to as resilience, which is adaptability. And you're describing like a dynamic mm-hmm. and flexible approach to your athletic career. So uh, grit and persistence is like you do the same thing and you, you don't complain and there's emotional suppression involved in it. And, and until you make it you, you, or break it, you keep going. Um, what we're referring to, and I think we are aligned to this, is adaptability. Saying that if if you're not well suited to this environment, don't persist. I mean, mm. you can convert and 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 shift your talents into other areas, which which may be more mm. fortuitous, it might be more beneficial to you in your yeah. long term aspiration. But it's all about what do I want to achieve in my life? Do I want to become an athlete? Um, do I want to become a successful business person? Do I want to become a successful? Mm. You know, where where do I want my success to to emanate from? And and what is going to be the best channel and what is going to be the best path. So, you know, the environment factor, from, from my standpoint, there are those who are much more vulnerable and susceptible to um, environmental challenges. So from a genetic standpoint, um, a lot of our potential is genetically determined. So there's 13 genes which have a, a very strong influence on our capacities, capacity for change, capacity for handling adversity, capacity for performance on, on all levels, mental, physical, emotional. Uh, the most influential genes are, are, are very much centered around dopamine and serotonin and, and neuropeptide Y and oxytocin and, and uh, a couple of the stress molecules as well. Now, the interesting thing about those gene variants, which can compromise your ability to be successful later in life that you could have inherited. The interesting thing about those gene variants, those polymorphisms, is that 
those polymorphisms are almost neutralized or mitigated as an influence if we can create the right environment around ourselves. So fundamentally, what they do is they make us more sensitive. So make us more reactive to stresses around us or make us um, less motivated when we are in pressure situations or however it, it unfolds and manifests. But if we can create the right environment so that, okay, well, we have this set of conditions that we need to create for ourselves in order to be motivated, I need to do a cold immersion on a daily basis in order to elevate my dopamine so that I am more motivated and driven and creative. Or I need to expose myself to the sun for at least 30 to 60 minutes a day to moderate and modulate my serotonin system. And, um, and omega-3 fatty acids are a central part. We, we can create those environments and we can reduce these sensitivities. And ultimately, the environment can manifest in the realities that we want. Um, but again, it calls for that flexibility and adaptability and self-awareness and self-control. So what I'm taking from that though is like the thing I can control is environment. So I shouldn't actually spend energy worrying about the genetics. I'm just going to actually manage the environment. The genetics will give you... I'm not sure that genetic testing actually has much predictive power, like given the, given how complex it is to actually see the expression and then the play yeah. out of those. It's the same thing with genes for diet and genes for... I mean, like there are 300,000 genes for height and they still only explain 80% of it. Yeah. So I do worry a little bit about sometimes the genetic predictability given how important environment is. Like rather manage what you can. But I think it, it does give you a window into how to optimize your environment. So it might not be 100% predictive, 100% accurate, I think, but it, it does give you a framework to understand. So let's say the dopaminergic genes, uh, DRD4, the, the kind of problems from a, a receptor perspective where you know, you're not, you, the communication, the signaling of dopamine might be compromised. If we can create, you know, just with this understanding, saying that, yes, I, I can't always construct, I'm not often motivated, uh, I struggle with impulsivity. I you struggle. need a gene test to know that. I mean, I know I'm those things already. You're, you're self-aware, but, <laughs> but at, at, our, at, at our age, we have this awareness. Yeah, you, you're yeah. talking about a teenager now who yeah. you want to bring to athletic potential, their, their fullest potential, and, and they might be struggling in certain areas, yeah. and they don't understand themselves. They don't understand that in order to optimize the system, they will require, like, tyrosine or one to two grams of tyrosine a day that would require certain things that would like certain activities that would stimulate the the, um, the dopaminergic receptors etc so so i think it's giving a window we eventually get to the point where we know i cannot have too much coffee i cannot eat certain foods i if i don't exercise on a regular basis i'm not clear if i mm. if i if i live this life i'm not the best version of myself we do arrive there mm. um adolescents teenagers struggle i suppose for me the trade-off though is is like at what point do i fall prey to a tool that is imperfect. It's, 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 not, it's much yeah. like grit, actually, because yeah. um, grit is a tool that can be very effective or it can actually be very damaging if used wrongly. And I worry a little bit sometimes about genetic testing that it creates almost a predetermined view of the world. And w what you're saying about environment, it's true. It's not, that, it's not the way. I mean, we all know, everyone listening to this will know someone who had no motivation, was the laziest guy that woman they've ever met in their lives, and then they found that one thing they loved, and suddenly they work harder than everyone else. So what value did the genetic test actually have when you should have maybe been exploring to find the thing you're interested in? And I guess that's the dilemma for me. Uh, I, it is a dilemma. Um, so, we, I mean, we do live in, a, in an imperfect world and our science is imperfect and we're doing the best that we can with the tools that we have and it's going to evolve. It's going to be far more effective in the next 10 years than it is right now. And I think it's one of the tools that, that might offer possibilities. Like, do we leverage our entire reality on it? No, yeah. certainly not. Um, but, but like, you know, where all the tools from science over the many years, I mean, we've taken major U-turns on scientific discoveries and applications. 
and this might be one of those, but I think for the time being in, in my experience with those I've used it in, it's a powerful motivating tool to take on the habit that ultimately culminates in success um, from an awareness. And, and whether it's accurate in its entirety or partially accurate or not accurate at all, uh, I think time will, will certainly tell. Yeah, as long as it's not misleading. Because yes. I mean, we, we once, when I was the sevens, we did it and we, we, we did it for, out of interest, not because we had any intention of acting on it. This was 10 years ago now. And we tested a bunch of guys and I saw a bunch of results from comrades, marathon, gold medalists saying, you have the sprint gene, go there. And the athlete said, but I've just come fourth in an 89-kilometer race. <laughs> and you're telling me I'm a sprinter. So that actually gave her like exactly the wrong information. Yeah. And then no, it's like, no, 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 hang on a moment. I'm letting my athletes near this thing. <laughs> but we have, we have the ability to find, do we not have the ability to be any side of the spectrum with enough training and exposure? Uh, possibly. But I mean, possibly. No, I don't know if it physiologically, like from that extreme, yeah, just 100 yeah. meter sprinting. But, yeah. but yes, but, that's, but the, so that's the point, right? It's yeah. like that athlete has probably explored and run at school, finished last in the hundreds. That's why yeah. they're running the comrades now, 34. You know, like, so I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. exploration is more valuable than prediction. Yeah, I, yeah. I think. Um, but but in the in the interests of saving time, and I think in the interests of um, bringing about early out positive outcomes, it might. It might. I, I wouldn't dismiss it. I think mm -hmm. that the interpretation is more valuable sometimes than just. Um, a printout, mm. so the interpretation, looking at context. Yeah. Um, so sometimes Again, it's that tool thing, you know. It's the tool. You can make a house with a hammer, or you could break it down. Yeah, it's exactly. So, so my experience is in interpretation, looking mm. at relationships, and that's it. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, and then back to talent pathways. I mean, in your experience, what you've seen, I know China creates like what is a very, <laughs> I think, unrealistic talent pathway for everywhere, maybe except China, because it's just a volume equation it's like throw as many people into this and see who comes out but what do you think the elements of good talent pathways would be based on what you see elements of good talent pathways the, the, you know what i what i can say is i've seen some very very talented individuals never amount to anything mm. um you know does talent is talent um all predictive um i think systems processes um structure actually affords greater success in almost anything else. Yes, there has to be an inherent ability. I think the Kevin Anderson story is is a prime example of that. Um, here we've got an individual who was to a degree kind of overlooked by the tennis community in his youth. Uh, he was always good. But no, he's, was, a, he's a, for that for, for those of you listening obviously he's the top South African player. He ranked in the top ten at one point, wasn't he? Uh, top five in the world. Top five. Yeah, yeah. top five. He made the Wimbledon final. He beat uh, who did he beat in that super? Was it Isna? Uh, Isna. Isna in that mega long semi-final. It's not the other Isna marathon, which was Mahout. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. Isna. Isna's always in a marathon. Yeah. And he made the final, I think he made a US Open as well, final or semi. He did, Same final, year. final, was final, his, within a calendar year. Mm, uh, two finals. His, that was his golden period. But anyway, it was a South African event. That's good context in it. Yeah, so he was, he was really, I mean... For South Africans, I mean, yeah. he was the next big player since Wayne Ferreira. Exactly. <laughs> and he left so, South Africa. So right? I was with the yeah, I was yeah. with the Davis Cup around two thousand five, two thousand six with the team, and we had a junior kind of squad, and we had all the mm. most talented players um, with within South Africa, and there was this this really like enriched environment where the juniors were practicing with the seniors, and I think Wayne Ferreira was just kind of coming to the end of his career, and and there were a lot of like very Westy moody. There was a lot of very successful players, specifically in the in the doubles, but. A lot of them were still in the top 15 in the world, and it was a better era for, for South African mm -hmm. tennis. Mm -hmm. 
And and Kevin was on the periphery. He a lot of people didn't think he was good enough. He was too tall. He was a basketball player. He was too lanky. He didn't have uh, enough versatility in his game. And and here you had a bunch of juniors. I think there was five juniors who were seriously talented. I mean, you you'd, you'd be in awe of their ability. And and what transpired at the end of the day was the the talent players really didn't move anywhere mm. in their careers. So you know, maybe got four five hundred in the world at best, or a thousand in the world at best. And Here's the guy who just head down, what do I need today to be better? How do I improve? Um, where can I adapt myself? Where can I grow? Who can help me grow? How can I evolve? And, and just was, was very determined in what he wanted for his life and what he wanted to achieve and became the most successful tennis player South Africa's produced yeah. um, next to, Wanfrey, uh, not to, uh, next to uh, Kevin Curry. Yeah. So, 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 okay, so that's, it's, it sounds like he put his head down and he had to work in spite of the support and system. That Lack of support, yeah. Yeah, it's actually yeah. succeeded despite. Could you, could you turn the lessons he teaches into some sort of systematic process that would get more players through like that? Like many listeners, okay, most people listening to this won't do this, but some people listening to this might actually be in charge of a talent pathway at a school or a club or a country even. What should they do to make that the norm? Sure. If I if I had that answer, um, I would be in a very different place and space. <laughs> I, I don't have the answer. And what to about that. what about parents? You said you got five, three kids under five, so you're going to have some opportunities. Have to some opportunities. This. What are you going to do with your kids to try and make them more resilient mm-hmm. and teach the behaviors that you think produce success without so, so making it, it, Chinese think, athletes? So but, I think that you you've you've actually just kind of um, honed in to like like a key principle i I think what's what kevin's story tells us is that what defined him wasn't necessarily talent in the early years Um, it's a set of skills and behaviors so every time he failed and every time he was shown he saw the opportunity to grow and develop himself um he developed tremendous like self-control and self-awareness metacognition so um he had this powerful self-dialogue just like novak Djokovic's secret weapon is self-dialogue he Kevin would tell himself the things he needed to to do in order to keep moving forward. Um, at the same time, Kevin would always have this vision of what his future would be or wanted to be. Um, these are all fundamental resilient skills, and you have the support structure from his family and people. So, so from my, from my standpoint, I think that ta- obviously talent is an important um, important prerequisite. That's yeah. that's a given. I mean, you you want, but I think that is your opening bid. I think that's yeah. an expectation. Yeah. If you're going through something that uh, a formal a formal funnel to professional sports, I think that talent is an expectation and starting, but a starting point. Mm-hmm. I think what's got to be um, filtered in onto that are these behavioral skills and these, these psychological skills that actually create strength within the athlete in coping with the setbacks and the failures at this point. Because so many talented athletes experience one or two failures and setbacks and they believe that the issue is with them. They believe that they're not that talent. They believe there's this implosion of of motivation so i think that the the answer actually lies in in yes process structure system and i think we've got a lot of that i think that that's already in play we've got the the formal physical development models we've got the sports psychologists coming in we've got the nutritionists we've got um you know whatever i wouldn't Mm. say genetics because uh, we have the controversy over the genetics but 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 we've got all the kind of tools that we can apply and they might be modified they might shift and they might change over time but but i think that the fundamental differentiators will be the the sets the set um, skills which which might be resilient skills which which determine outcome uh, through the challenge through the setback through the failure and I would say that there's at least eight of them um, and I think if they could be installed and reinforced and trained 
in um, the younger years with the talented mm-hmm. talented athletes. I think we might ensure that a lot a lot more gifted individuals actually make it to where they belong, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to falling out along the way. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a fascinating insight. That is a great place to end actually, just to talk about that because I think we can take a lot out of just that last statement of yours about having resilient skills to some extent. So your book, Thrive, The Power of Resilience, I'm assuming it's out now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's, can you get released. it on Amazon? And um, locally, stuff? it's only in South Africa at, at this point moment, in time because okay. um, there, there will be an international publication. Um, kind of thing happening a little bit later this year, but but okay. right now it's just been released in South Africa. And you've got a website as well. Yes, yeah, Sutton Health. That's it. Look at that. So if you're interested in looking at the book, um, look at that. Obviously, anything that happens on your social media will know when the book is out. But for those of you in South Africa, you can buy it at most bookstores now. And it is uh, about 350 bucks or something. Some, some, some so, thanks so much for coming yeah. in. Thank oh, you. Yeah, thanks, thanks, so thanks, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.